we would like for you to turn with us to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6. As we continue this walk, this trek through this wonderful historical narrative of the people of God and how the people of God were renewed and restored by the gracious hand of God. Ezra chapter 6. Now, we stopped last week somewhere around verse 12. And I'm going to point to these different sections as we come to them. So I'm not going to read the entire text for you this morning. One of the things that will help you tremendously as we are preaching through books of the Bible is that you know from Sunday to Sunday where we're going next Sunday. And it will help you tremendously if you will on Saturday night perhaps or throughout the week just read ahead. And say we were in chapter 5 last week. Let's go on and read through chapter 6, 7. It won't take you long. You could actually read through the entire uh, book of Ezra in probably 15 minutes. So you can read through this and you can think about these things so that you'll be more prepared on Sunday mornings. Let me give just a little bit of an introduction, and then I want to pray with you again. We've witnessed to the book of Ezra how that God has graciously moved in power and provided for the renewal of his people and the renewal of his own worship in Jerusalem. We have witnessed how God began this renewal by stirring the pagan king. In chapter 1, we looked at that. He stirred this pagan king to send the people of Israel back to their homeland. He stirred the people of Israel themselves to go back and to have the desire to go and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They began by renewing the altar. They did what they could when they could. You remember that? They did not have the temple yet. They were going back to rebuild the temple. But they did what they could when they could. So the first thing that they did was they rebuilt the altar. They built the altar. And they reinstated the sacrifices. And they began to worship God with the means that they had at their disposal. They began then to rebuild the temple and lay the foundation. But under the pressure of opposition of those who did not want them to build the temple, those who were not truly a part of the people of God and did not want to see this happened, they were forced to stop the building of the temple. And what a dramatic ending to that sermon as we felt the sting of the stop. The stopping of the forward progress of what was the purpose and plan and will of God. God was the one who stirred the pagan king, remember? God was the one Who stirred the people of Israel. God was the one who provided the vessels for the house of the Lord. God was the one who provided everything that they needed to go back. And to rebuild the temple. And yet God was also the one who allowed the opposition to stop the forward progress. And we need to hear that again this morning. Just simply because as we sang that song in his time. There are things that I want. 
to see in my spiritual development. There are things that I long for you as the sheep of this fold. And I have to trust in God. I have to rest in the sovereignty of God. In the reality that it is God who will do His works. And who will accomplish His plan in His time. In His time. And so for approximately 15 years, the work stopped. And I want you to feel the weight of that even this morning. How many of you have had to wait 15 years for something? Some of you may have. And last week from chapter 5 up to chapter 6 and verse 12, we learned that God graciously provided that the, so that the work would restart again and the renewal would continue by providing graciously the men of God, equipped with the word of God, and also granting the favor of God. So that there again, we saw the gracious, unmerited, unearned, covenant-keeping faithfulness of God to keep His promises and to fulfill His purposes by sending the men of God with the word of God and the favor of God to start back again and even to do this in the midst of opposition. And today we come to the high point of the story. We come, as you can see, to the climax of the renewal. We come to the point in the place where we're going to see this morning that the temple is finished. And so we find a climax of this renewal. But as you're going to see as we continue through this book, this is not the end of the story. And I love the Word of God because, for one thing, the Word of God paints for us and gives to us a picture of reality. The Word of God does not talk the way so many Christians talk these days. With kind of rose-colored glasses as if everything is okay when it is truly not. And we see the ups and downs and the ebb and flow of the plan and the purposes of God. We see the rise and the heightening of spiritual fervor in the hearts and the lives of the people of God. And we also see the decline and the moral decay that quickly follows in the wake of disobedience and rebellion against God. And this is the history of the world. And it's the history of the church and the people of God. And we're going to find that out. Even in this very book. But what I see clearly from this story that we're going to look at this morning. And what I want you to see. And what I believe God wants us to see. Is His faithfulness. God's faithfulness. I want us to see the result of holy joy. In the faithfulness of God. There is a sense in which the people of God gather together on Sundays and whenever they gather. And there is this spontaneous, holy, pure, righteous joy because of the faithfulness of our God. Let me pray with you. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this people. And we thank you for your word. We know this morning that your word is true. Your word is powerful. 
We know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that your word is alive and active in the world. And I pray this morning, and we pray, those who are like-minded, that you would take your word again and refresh us and renew us and restore us where we need to be restored. Oh God, we pray that you will come and we ask you even now to come and to fill our hearts and to direct our attention to you and your word. And we pray that you would do the work that only you can do. The work of eternal effect. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the result of holy joy from the faithfulness of God. I have three headings that I want to give you that will help guide our attention as we look at these verses together. Number one, God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. Verses 13 to 18. God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. So we're looking at the spontaneous joy that comes as an overflow of the experience of the faithfulness of God. That we see in the text and hopefully we see in our own lives and we experience even afresh this morning. And the first heading, God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. Beginning in verse 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tataniah the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozaniah and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered, namely that they would rebuild the temple, they would leave the people of Israel alone and allow them to continue the work. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. You see it there? They offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And so here we see God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. It is that stage that we're looking for in our spiritual development. It is the stage that they were looking for. That moment, that climax, when all of the labor and all of the prayers, when all of the money, when all of the resources that have been provided and given and, and shaped and molded and transported and all the labor that went into this project of rebuilding the temple was completed, they could look at this temple 
And immediately their hearts would be filled with joy because this was a display of the faithfulness of God. My friends, they had not reached this climactic moment without hardship. They had undergone great trials. No doubt in a 15-year span, people had died. Family members had died. No doubt people had gotten sick. No doubt people had faced many trials from the opposition, the enemies of the people of God, who would threaten them and mock them and taunt them and criticize them. But according to history, on March the 12th, 515 B.C., it was finished. Four years after the work was renewed, according to Haggai, Chapter 1, verse 15, 20 years after the work had begun, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 8, and almost exactly 70 years after the people of Israel had been carried away captive to Babylon in 586 B.C. So God, who had promised His judgment... God who had acted out His judgment on the people of Israel and took them captive. God who had prophesied through Jeremiah that there would be a 70-year exile has now restored His people. He has now brought them back to their homeland. He has now enabled them to rebuild the temple to the Lord God of heaven and earth in Jerusalem. He has established them in the land. And what a joyful time. That must have been for these people. And I'm reminded of the time that you and I look forward to. The time when Jesus' work on the cross is fully realized. The time when Jesus himself descends, coming, stepping on the clouds to receive those whom he purchased when he died on the cross. When the everything in the world, every skyscraper, when every house and mansion, when every theme park and race car track and football field, when every residence and when every building has been flattened and burned by fervent heat that falls from God out of heaven, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The climactic moment of our waiting and our sojourn in this life is the moment when Jesus comes and gets His bride. And they could look at this as just a little glimpse of heaven. A little glimpse as they looked at the temple. God had promised and God has been faithful. Well, how does He do it? Three ways under this first heading that I see that he does display his faithfulness in a finished temple. Number one, through political support. Political support. (laughs) Is this not relevant for our day? (laughs) I love preaching God's word. It, It just, it blows my mind that I can pray and get some direction from God who inspired this book to be written. And the same Holy Spirit that inspired this book to be written indwells me. 
Not by any good thing that I've done, but surely on the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But He indwells me, and I can pray and seek His face for what this flock needs, what I need, and what we need. And get direction that I believe that is from Him. And begin to walk, and I'm gonna, this is gonna mean something here in a minute. And begin to walk, to begin to step out and to act upon the impulses that I receive for the Holy Spirit as I read His Word and seek His face in prayer and and step out and act on faith, trusting in Him. And He leads me to Ezra. And here we are. Two sermons have already included something that deals with the nature of how the people of God interact with civil government. That we live among and must know how to interact must know how to live as foreigners from our true home in this nation. And so, without planning that, I didn't even know the things that would happen. God knows. He knows what we need. He knows. So, How does he display his faithfulness in a finished temple? Number one, through political support that was given. If you look back again at verse 13, it says, According to the word sent by Darius the king, here you have the government system of a king, and Tataniah the governor, who is the the governor of the province there in Jerusalem. And and Shethar Bozani, he loved to say his name, and those associates that were not named, were instructed by the king to, with all diligence, support this work of the rebuilding of the temple after it had been stopped for 15 years. So in chapter 4, just earlier, we noticed how that the enemies of God and the enemies of His people used political strategy in order to stop the building. And now we see political strategy being used and political support being used To build the temple. Now that should give you and I this morning a clue as to how God uses civil government. (laughs) The civil government most likely believes for the most part that they are the ones that are pulling the strings. But I assure you this morning they are not. They, in chapter 4, were able to petition the king to stop the building of the temple. And it stopped by order, decree of the king. Here we are in chapter 6. And we find that this same scenario took place. They wrote a letter. They said, oh, we got to stop this rebuilding of the temple. They've started back again. And the king sends back and says, no, you let them continue to rebuild And I submit to you this morning that this is nothing less than the faithfulness of God being displayed to the people of God. Secondly, so there are three ways I'm talking about he displays his faithfulness to a finished temple. First, political support was given. Second, the word of God was given. The word of God prospers the work. We've already learned In a previous sermon, how that God provided His Word. And the Word of God gave rise to the actual work. In other words, it was the Word of God that went forth through the prophet of God. 
that gave rise to the very rebuilding of the temple. These people did not decide to go back to Jerusalem on their own. This was the work of God. This was the plan of God. God sent them back. God gave them a heart to go back. And it was out of the word of the Lord that they found their purpose. My friend, can I share with you that's the same for you and I? You want to know what your purpose is in this world? Open God's Word. You will not find it otherwise. You will not find it anywhere else. You say, well, I don't want to be a pastor. (laughs) I don't want to be a a worker in the church. I'm not going to be a youth pastor. I'm not going to be a missionary. I don't feel called to those things. It makes no difference this morning. Listen, what your job is, your purpose as a child of God is found in the Word of God. It does not matter whether you're a school teacher or a coal miner. It doesn't matter. You, listen, have a higher purpose than your job. You have a higher purpose in the job that you perform in the secular world. And God gives us that purpose, direction from His Word. Look, if you will, in verse 14, the first part of verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built, and here's the word that I borrowed from the text, and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. So the word of God, as we learned before, gives rise to the work. And we said the word of God gives support to the worker And here we're finding again that it is the Word of God that prospers the work. (laughs) If you want to be successful in your life, and when I define success, listen, I don't define success by numbers of, say for example, in the church, by the number of people that we can get to come into a room. It's not hard to get people in a room. All you have to have is a concert. You have a concert, you'll get people in the room. You can you can have a uh, <laughs> you can have all kinds of things. I've seen people bring motorcycles in and put motorcycle ramps up. I've seen them do all kinds of stuff to get people in the room. But what you win people with is what you win people to, and those things are not a solid foundation on which to build your life. And very often I'm inclined to think there are not good things in which to bring people into the church. Period. It's the word of God that prospers the work. And you must realize that success as a Christian. Listen very carefully. Success as a Christian is not how much money you make. It's not how many friends you have. It's not the possessions that you own. It is your Faithfulness to the Word of God. If you are faithful to God's Word, I assure you, if you lose all of your friends, all of your money, lose your job, lose your house, lose your life, you have lost nothing if you remain faithful to the Word of God. Did you know that there is coming a day? Oh, my friends, please. Entertain me and God this morning by giving this an ear. There is coming a day 
when God is going to turn the world upside down. The last will be first and the first will be last. Those who have success as er- by all means in the outward appearances today without Christ will be at the bottom of the list. They will be in the worst place imaginable. And the lowest, most seemingly unsuccessful Christian lives in faithfulness to the Word of God will be in the most beautiful place imaginable. He's going to turn the world upside down. Be careful what influences your life because God looks at things a lot differently. It is the Word of God that prospers your life and makes you successful. Let me give you a verse that I love on this, on this one. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what the prophet says. Actually, this is the prophet quoting God. As the rain, so this is an analogy. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You see the result of the rain and the snow? There's an effect of it. Manifold effect. And he says, here's the analogy. As for the rain and snow, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Beloved, if that means your death, it will not go unrewarded. Your life is not wasted unless you waste your life on the vain things of the world. Your life is not wasted unless you waste your life pursuing the things that God created to the neglect of the Creator. The wasted life is the life that is not lived in a relationship with God and in faithfulness to His Word. That's a wasted life. Number three, God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. The first way that he does it, through political support. The second is the word that prospers the work. Thirdly, divine sovereignty and human activity. So this is a twofold point. Divine sovereignty and human activity. I see this in the second part of verse 14 and also verse 22. So, Last part of 14 and 22. Let's look at it together. So in the latter part of verse 14. This is what it says. Pay attention to every word. I'm going to start right there at that sentence that begins with the word they. They finished. They finished their building. How? Number one. By decree of the God of Israel. By decree of the God of Israel. So the, when I say divine sovereignty... And human activity, this is what I mean. 
They finished the work. They prospered and were able to step back and see the faithfulness of God in the finishing of the temple. And they know that this has happened by the decree of God. Now let's go on and finish the sentence. It says, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. <laughs> so there you have divine sovereignty. And the word sovereign means ruler. That's what it means. If you don't know what it means, the word sovereign means ruler. God is the ruler. The president is not the ruler. The king or the queen of England is not the ruler. God is the ruler. They are, they are only able to do what they do because God allows them to do it. They are only able to do what they do because God puts them in those positions for His purposes and for His glory. Exactly the way that God said He put Pharaoh on the throne in the Old Testament. And then jump down and look at verse 22, the last verse. What a remarkable verse this is. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why? You know why I asked the word why? Because the next word in the sentence is the word for. And the word for is telling me that that first part happened because of the second part. See what I'm saying? Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why? For because the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. What makes the difference between this king that says, let's get this job done and the king before in chapter four that said, no, stop this job. Answer, God. That's why. The difference is God. That's clearly what the Bible is telling us. The reason that they were able to accomplish this was because of the decree of God. And by turning the heart of the king in the favor, in the favor of the people of God and allowing them to complete the rebuilding, God encouraged his people and the temple was completed. And these people understood what the writer meant in the book of Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. Do you know what that verse says? Listen to this verse. Proverbs 21 verse 1. Quote, the king's, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Part two. He turns it wherever he will. Ezra and the people of God understood that better because of this. What is going on with this pagan king? What does he care about the people of God and Israel? Well, nothing on his own. But the king's heart is in the hand of God. And God takes the, the heart of the king that's in his hand and he turns it where he wants it to go. That's what the Bible said. That's what the Bible said. Well, that's the first part. Divine sovereignty. Oh, I have a quote here. I have a long quote. I found this, and uh, I don't know who to give the source to, so you know it's not me. Quote, this is not, okay, the word decree. It came first by the decree of who? Of God, okay? 
The word for, this is not the normal term for command or decree, but it is the same word that's translated decree or administrative order throughout the book. So when it's talking about Cyrus or Darius saying, I I make a decree, the sovereign decree from my throne that this is going to happen. And listen, when Darius or Cyrus or Artaxerxes made a decree, do you think it happened? It happened because (laughs) if it didn't happen, you would be killed. In the most brutal way. They were very, very brutal people. So, it, and what, what this writer is pointing out is what I'm trying to point out to you. That this word that's used for, it, it came as a decree from God, from the Lord, is the same exact word that he uses when he says it comes from a decree of Cyrus or Darius or Artaxerxes. So, the message here, quote, is powerful. It was the decree from God, the sovereign of the universe, which gave administrative authority to rebuild the temple. The decrees of the three of, of three of the greatest monarchs in the history of the ancient Near East were only secondary issues. God rules the universe and he raises up kings, then pulls them from their thrones. When they have served his administration. That's why I said last week. Don't get. Don't be frantic about what's happening in our country. Don't be frantic about it. God's still on the throne. He's still on the throne. If you want further proof. Go back. Just read the whole Bible. But if you go back specifically. And you look in the book of Daniel. Watch what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, another pagan king. And watch what Nebuchadnezzar himself says after he was made into a lunatic of sorts for a period of time. And God restored him to his mental sanity again. Watch what Nebuchadnezzar says about who actually rules the kingdoms of the world. Now, what about the second part? I said... That this is divine sovereignty in human activity. Because those names of the kings are also there. Because there were people, and I don't know, again, I don't know all what kind of instruments they use, but let's use some that we'll understand. There were people with hammers. There were people with saws. You know, there were people, you know, lifting these gigantic stones and putting the timbers into place. There were people, there were people carrying the vessels of the house of the Lord and putting them in their proper place as God had instructed them in His Word. There was not only divine sovereignty, but there was human activity. And you and I must understand this mystery from God's Word. We must understand that God is in control, and yet we are also called by God to participate in what He's doing. God said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if the gospel is going to be preached in the nations of the world today, it will be preached by human lips. But it will be God who is doing the work. It will be God who will be receiving the glory. And it will be God who is the decisive factor of the equation. You can write this down. God uses means. God uses means. 
And if you don't think that's important for your life, I, let me give you a little test. <laughs> and I fail this, so I'll just tell you up front. You know, it's not. I am never, by the way, just a little insertion here. I am never preaching from a platform of superiority over any of you. You understand? Never. But let me give you a little test. Have you ever prayed and what you really were wanting was God to give you what I call the zap? That God would zap you and make you holy. That God would zap you and take away your sinful inclinations toward this, that, or the other. Man, I messed up again. God, take this from me. You ever prayed that way? So have I. Now, is that totally wrong in and of itself? No, it is not. But here's the thing. Deep down in your heart, are you really expecting God to do something in you that you are not willing to also work to accomplish? And you know you've prayed that way. You know you have, and so have I. Oh, God, just take it while the Bible sits over on the side. Oh, God, just take it. While the prayer closet is never entered into. Oh God just take it. When we neglect the local church. Oh God just take it. When we neglect the means of grace. That God has given in our lives. So that we may resist sin. And be victorious. In our Christian life. God is sovereign. And if you ever overcome sin. And become more into the very image of Christ. It will be because God has stirred your heart. God has drawn you. And God has enabled you. But it will also be because you step out. And act and work and think and pray. And read the word and memorize the word. And meditate upon the word and live the word. You and I must grasp. This divine mystery. Otherwise. In my spiritual life. I'm just going to go over and sit down. (laughs) You do it. You're the one in control right? Amen. He is in control. But God uses means to accomplish his ends. And God used a man that didn't even believe and submit to him as Lord and King of all the earth. Darius, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, leader after leader. God uses them for His purposes. But yet they live and they act. And so must we. So that's the first thing. God's faithfulness displayed in a finished temple. Number two. (laughs) Number two. Number two. God's faithfulness celebrated with dedication. Verses 16 to 18. Let's look at those. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication and we read that together. So let's just stop. You know what that is. They, they, it tells about the offerings that they gave. So God's faithfulness is celebrated with dedication. Not only through the display of the temple that had been finished, but in their dedication of this temple to His worship, to His honor, and to His glory. This was a celebration and a dedication of joy. They were filled with joy. Why? Because God had fulfilled the promises that He made to His people. God had been faithful, and they were joyful. And they were 
celebrating this work. And is that not a celebration? Is that not what a church service should be? That you and I would open God's word and look into our lives and see the faithfulness of God and spontaneously burst out with celebration, joy, and dedication. This is all to you, our God. Number three. The third observation or the third heading, God's faithfulness remembered in the Passover. Verses 19 to 22. God's faithfulness remembered in the Passover. On the 14th day, says verse 19 of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. Pay attention to that phrase. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. And I love this. I love this next phrase. And also by everyone who had joined them. And separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. There it is again. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let me say just a couple things about God's faithfulness. That is remembered in the Passover. The Passover was the feast. The festival of the people of Israel. Where they remembered how God in his faithfulness. Brought the people out from under their oppressors. And delivered them from their captives. Is that ringing a bell with these people? The Passover is where you remember. Where you were in bondage. And how God in covenant keeping faithfulness and love came and rescued the people of Israel from Pharaoh and from their oppressors. And delivered them out into a covenant relationship with God of heaven and earth. And delivered them and ushered them into the land of promise. My friends, they celebrated this Passover remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. And remembering the faithfulness of God in their present lives. They had to see the correlation. They had to see it. As they took and slaughtered the Passover lamb. And ate it together. Understanding what it meant. It's interesting to see that this renewal from God brought purity among the people. Let me ask you a question. What do you think it is for you to grow as a Christian? What do you think it is? How do you measure spiritual maturity? Do you think it's how many memory verses you can recite? How many times you've read through the Bible? How many church services you've attended? How much money you put in the plate? It's none of those. Are all of those things good? Yes. That's not a good measure for spiritual maturity. You want to know what it is? Here it is. Holiness. If you want to know where you are 
in your spiritual development, or if you're even on the road, what is your current level of desire for personal holiness? Can you look back over the last week and say, this is how God has conformed me more into the very image of Christ, my Lord. This is how I have taken the heart of my Father which is in heaven and it has been, it has been embraced by my soul and has been lived out in my actions, in my attitudes. The renewal of God's people was marked by purity and holiness. <laughs> when God gets a hold of you, you want to be clean. You want to be forgiven. You want to be pure. Verse 20, the leaders purified themselves. Verse 21, the people purified themselves, including, praise be to God, the converts. Some of the people from the land... Some of those people, no doubt, that were in opposition to the people of God when they came to rebuild the temple and establish the true worship of God that resisted the true word of God. Some of those people were converted. And they were there. And they were worshiping, it says in verse 21, the God of Israel. They had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land and they were worshiping God. What a picture of the church. Occasionally we see one of those, don't we? One that is in darkness and sin and death that is brought to life and is a part of the family of God. Never forget the Exodus. Our worship this morning flows for the realization and the remembrance of how God has acted to bring us out of captivity to himself and to establish us in, a, in an eternal relationship with him forever. And if you want that today, the Bible tells you how to do it. The Bible tells you how that it's possible that you can do it, namely, it's not by any works that you can do. It's not by any ritual that you can perform, not even essentially and necessarily in a prayer that you can pray. It's not in cleaning up your act because you can't do it. <laughs> I would dare you to try, but you might die in the process. No, you don't need to try to clean up your act. You must do two things. You must understand. Three things. You must understand that what Jesus of Nazareth did on the cross was for you. You must understand that when he died, he died as a substitute for you. So that your purity doesn't come from yourself but him. And what he begins to work in you by his Holy Spirit. And understanding that that work was done for you on the cross. Then you do two things. You repent. You turn away from sin. And you believe. You trust in Jesus. 
Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this word from your word. Thank you for your grace and goodness that you've shown to us today. Thank you for your faithfulness, oh God, in our lives. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, oh God, that no matter how we squirm, no matter like a child trying to run away from the hand of the Father, you hold us and you won't let us go. Thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and giving your life on the cross. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God, for your convicting and converting and regenerating work and illuminating work, helping us to see for the first time the truth, to hear with new ears and to receive with new hearts the truth. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that have gathered today. Thank you for this crowd. I pray there will not be one to leave this room without bowing the knee of their hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.